In Matthew 19, Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I would add that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a preacher to preach a truly balanced sermon on money. Many preachers will tell you that the biblical passages on money, especially those found in the Gospels, are their least favorite passages to preach. It's so hard to get it right. It's really easy for sermons on money to blunt the force of what Jesus had to say about money, with the result that people who ought to be challenged and convicted about their use of money are not. And so the sermon ends up just reinforcing the status quo. Nothing ever changes. On the other hand, it's possible for a preacher to sound so radical when he preaches on money that he creates a lot of false guilt for people. He actually encourages, perhaps through the stories he tells or the uh, questions he raises, he actually encourages foolish financial decisions based on short-term emotion rather than long-term wisdom. And that's not helpful either. Is there a way to thread the needle, so to speak? Uh, by God's grace, I'm going to give it a shot this morning and again in two weeks. I'm going to focus, eventually I'll get to Matthew 6 this morning and then 1 Timothy 6 uh, in a couple weeks from now when I preach again. And I don't feel bad about preaching two sermons on money fairly close together. Jesus spoke on money more than any other single topic. In fact, about 15, between 15 and 20% of Jesus' recorded words in the gospel concern money. To, give, to put that in perspective for you, if I preached on money as often as Jesus did, about one in every six sermons would be about money. It's actually been a really long time since I've addressed money from the pulpit, so you're going to get two sermons this month. Again, one focused on Matthew 6, another on 1 Timothy 6. The reason it's so hard to find balance, and, and again, by that I mean biblical balance, not the way somebody else might think about balance, but biblical balance on this topic of money is because the Bible really is full of paradoxes on this topic. The Bible's full of tension on this topic. There are certain tension points in the Bible's teaching about money. Now, these are not contradictions. We need to be really clear about that. The Bible never contradicts itself. But the Bible's teaching is often full of tensions that stretch us simultaneously in different directions. And that's for our good. That's one of the ways that God matures us and leads us into wisdom is as we wrestle with those tension points and what they mean for our lives as we're stretched out in these different directions. Consider just a few examples of, uh, of these biblical tensions on the topic of money. On the one hand, we're told God provides all things richly for our enjoyment. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. God provides all things richly for our enjoyment. Scripture stresses the goodness of God's creation, the goodness of God's gifts. It emphasizes feasting. God gives wine to gladden the heart. Ecclesiastes says, enjoy the fruits of your labors and the wife of your youth. There's this big emphasis on enjoying God's gifts, but at the same time, the scripture continually warns us about the dangers of overindulgence, the dangers of consumerism, of trusting in wealth and living for our own comfort and our own pleasure. There's a paradox. On the one hand, we're to enjoy God's gifts. On the other hand, wealth and pleasure are dangerous. Here's another one. We are commanded to be frugal. 
We're commanded to save money, to plan for the future, to make wise financial decisions looking ahead. We're commanded to leave an inheritance for our children. At the same time, we are commanded to be generous with the needy, to care for the poor, to look out for widows and orphans who have no family of their own. And so we're pulled in different directions simultaneously, pulled between saving for our family's future and helping others in need in the present. There is a tension there that we have to live with, that we have to wrestle with. That's a paradox. The same Bible commands storing up wealth for future generations also tells us to give generously to the poor in need outside of our families. That's a tension we have to wrestle with. The Bible's teaching on money is actually full of complexity. It requires wisdom to fully understand it. It's very easy to get it wrong, very easy to misunderstand it, very easy to pull a few verses here and there out of context and go real far in one direction or the other and lose that tension, to to lose sight of those paradoxes that we see when we look at Scripture as a whole. It's actually very difficult to put all of the Bible's teaching on money together into a coherent package and then to apply it properly in our lives. You have to thread the needle. There are two extremes that are especially important to avoid. And I'm going to call these the prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel. And I want to lay out for you the problems with each of these because if if you get a sense of these extremes and what's wrong with them, It'll get us much closer to threading that needle and arriving at a truly biblical understanding of money. Take the prosperity gospel for starters. Uh, You're probably familiar with the prosperity gospel because there are so many famous TV preachers who push this, so many famous TV preachers who hawk the prosperity gospel. It's the health and wealth gospel. The prosperity gospel says, if you have enough faith, you will be healthy and wealthy. If you have enough faith, you can name it and claim it. And of course, that means anybody who isn't wealthy or who is sick doesn't have enough faith. And so you're you're, you're to blame if you're not living your best life now. Prosperity preachers will take certain verses about prosperity out of context. There are actually a lot of verses in the Bible about prosperity. Uh, We read from Deuteronomy 28 this morning. That's one example of this. But what happens is they will take those verses, they will isolate those verses from the rest of Scripture. They'll ignore other verses that give us another perspective. And so they end up contradicting the message of the Bible as a whole. Yes, there are passages in the Bible that connect material prosperity to faith and to obedience, but that is not the whole story. There are also passages that show us that godly people will suffer, and sometimes wicked people will prosper. And so when you actually read the Bible as a whole, you find you cannot tell whether God is pleased with you or not just by looking at your outward circumstances. You can't read off God's favor or disfavor with you just by looking at your outward circumstances, whether you're healthy and wealthy or not. There are wealthy people who are righteous, and there are wealthy people who are wicked. There are poor people who are righteous, and there are poor people who are wicked. All of those categories exist in the Bible. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel because it lies about what God has actually promised. And in telling these lies, it sets people up to be manipulated and exploited. Think about the book of Job and Job's friends. Job is a wealthy man, he's a king, and then he loses everything. His wife apparently brought into the prosperity gospel of some sort because she just said, well, curse God and die. 
But Job's friends who come to be his counselors, I'll say friends in scare quotes, his friends who come to be his counselors had also bought into a prosperity gospel. They operated with a kind of prosperity gospel mindset, and so they blamed Job for his suffering. They blamed the victim. If you're suffering, it must be your fault. You must have done something wrong. We know that's not the case. And that's why at the end of the book, the friends are essentially condemned and silenced. Get this. Job was just as faithful and righteous when he lost it all as when he had it all. Job was a righteous rich man, and then Job was a righteous poor man, and then he was a righteous rich man again. And so Job shows you can be a righteous man at any point along that financial spectrum. The prosperity gospel misunderstands God's purposes for us. Sometimes God's purposes for his people include making us sick and poor for our ultimate good. The prosperity gospel treats God as a means to an end. When you buy into this false gospel, health and wealth become your true God and you use God as a means to get these other things. You seek the gifts rather than the giver. You're obsessed with the gifts rather than the giver. The prosperity gospel turns God into a giant sky butler there to fulfill our needs. God becomes a wish-granting genie. And your real interest is not in God himself, but what you can get from him, how you can use God for your own benefit. Your religion becomes a means to gain, a means to personal fulfillment and nothing else. This is not the Christian faith. This is a form of materialism. It's incredibly popular in our culture. You can see why it might appeal to people, but it's a false gospel. Prosperity theology is wrong. Now, it's not wrong because it values happiness. It's not wrong because it values human flourishing. We'll see that later on this morning. It's not necessarily unspiritual to desire health and wealth. But the prosperity gospel is unspiritual because it makes prosperity, rather than God's glory, the central focus of life. The chief end of life becomes seeking your own health and wealth, even above God's kingdom and God's glory. We need to understand, God withholds many good things from us right now for our good. Indeed, God puts us through many hardships and trials. God sometimes does. He makes us poor or makes it very difficult for us to make ends meet financially. Or he puts us through a hard time physically with some kind of illness or physical trial. God does these things to make us into the kind of people he wants us to be. God does not want spoiled children God wants mature, battle-tested, faithful children. And God will put us through hardship to get us there because he is a faithful and loving father. And this is his purpose for us. But there is another extreme, and this one flies under the radar a bit more, but it's actually pretty common as well. It's what I will call the poverty gospel, or I've heard it called the hobo gospel. A lot of different names for this. If the prosperity gospel is a form of materialism, the poverty gospel is a form of Gnosticism. You know who the Gnostics are. The Gnostics deny the goodness of God's creation or they're suspicious of physical things. They think the problem is really with physicality or materiality rather than sin. That's really where they locate the problem is in the physical world. The, the, the poverty gospel tends to devalue the goodness of God's world. It tends to devalue the goodness of God's gift. Yes. 
The poverty gospel starts with Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 1. It starts with the fall rather than with creation. Creation where God makes all things good. Instead of starting there, it starts with the fall. And so the poverty gospel makes people very suspicious of physical things. It makes people very suspicious of wealth and profit because all of those things are tainted. The idea behind the poverty gospel is that a really spiritual person will be uninterested in profit or in productivity or in any kind of worldly success or power or influence. He's not interested in money. He has no ambition, no drive for worldly success. Money is at best a necessary evil. The greater your material poverty, the more spiritual you must be. The closer you can get to owning nothing, the more spiritual a person you must be. Monks, of course, taking a vow of poverty is one example of this from history. Another example would be churches or Christians that stress so much that say, if you really want to serve God, you're going to be a missionary or a pastor because what really counts is not the business world or the culture at large. What really counts is doing some kind of ministry or doing evangelism. Worldly and secular vocations don't matter. Only evangelism, only ministry. That's how the poverty gospel operates. There's kind of a secular, sacred dichotomy in this view. And only things on the sacred side, things having to do with evangelism or ministry of some sort, only those things really matter. The poverty gospel is right to recognize that there are certain dangers and temptations that come with wealth and with the pursuit of wealth. It's right to stress we're called to sacrificial living. But what it ignores is that we are also called to stewardship. Indeed, we are called to dominion. Going back to Genesis chapter 1, the creation mandate to take dominion, to rule over the earth, to subdue it. The poverty gospel misunderstands this. We're not just to evangelize the nations, but to disciple them. And the mission of the church is nothing less than the cultural triumph of the Christian faith. If Christians pursue impoverishment, it means we'll never have very much influence or power. It means there probably won't be any Christian statesmen in public office. There won't be any Christian doctors or business owners because all of those vocations require accumulated capital to pursue. It means there won't be any way to fund serious Christian institutions. There won't be any wealthy Christian patrons who can support Christian artists and musicians. In Scripture, there is not only an emphasis on giving wealth away, certainly that's there, there's also an emphasis on stewarding wealth, which means growing that wealth and multiplying it. The parables of Jesus focus on this again and again. Think about the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. God gives out talents. God invests in us, and then at the end of the parable, we find God expects a return on his investment. There is no poverty gospel in that parable, just the opposite, in fact. Uh, I think the poverty gospel happens when Christians focus on the Great Commission at the expense of the creation mandate. You've got the creation mandate in Genesis 1, you've got the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. When the Great Commission is separated from the creation mandate, what happens? Grace and nature get separated, the secular and the sacred get separated evangelism becomes the chief end of life, and evangelism itself gets reduced to saving souls. But if we go back to the creation mandate, which is really the foundation for everything else, which has never been canceled, it's still in effect today, 
we find life is about more than evangelism. It's about more than giving large sums of money away to the poor. It's about dominion. It's about subduing and ruling the earth. It's about building a God-glorifying civilization, which means the work we do and the wealth we accumulate matter to God. God made us to rule and subdue the earth. Christian businessman Tom Addison describes it this way. He explains that giving all your money away to the poor in some radical act of generosity, some very dramatic act of generosity, giving all your money away to the poor normally contradicts wisdom. There's a place, obviously, in the Gospels where Jesus calls on somebody to do that, but I think that's a one-off thing. He doesn't do that with most people in most situations. I think there's a unique moment going on there in Matthew 19. Tom Addison explains giving away all your money to the poor normally contradicts wisdom because you can actually do more for the poor in the long run if you continue to grow and steward your wealth. And this is why the normal pattern of Christian giving is is tied to the tithe rather than to giving everything away as soon as you accumulate something. That's why tithing does more good for the kingdom in the long run than giving everything away at once. Giving away 10% over the years will actually net far more giving than a one-time gift of 100%. That's just the reality. That's wisdom recognizing. The anti-wealth view of the poverty gospel has affected a lot of Christians in our day, and it leaves us very vulnerable, especially with younger Christians I've seen this. Christians in their teens and their 20s, when young Christians are told that pursuing a career or accumulating wealth and capital are unspiritual activities and you should feel guilty about those things, when they're told that by the church, and then when, say, somebody like uh, Klaus Schwab comes along or Bill Gates comes along and says, you'll own nothing and like it, then these Christians say, well... I guess so. I guess I'm not supposed to own anything after all, right? I mean, wouldn't that be more spiritual to not own anything? Jesus didn't have a house. Maybe I shouldn't have a house either. And what they fail to realize is that that view actually just further weakens the church. It takes away the freedom Christians need to have to really pursue and fulfill the mission that God has given to us. It undermines a civilization that our fathers in the faith spent generations building, and it's actually just false. It's not right to say Jesus doesn't own anything. Jesus actually owns everything. And the Bible's very concerned with ownership from beginning to end. The Bible's very concerned with private property and property rights and what we do with our property. We should not be afraid of wealth. We should not be afraid of capital. We should not be afraid of profit or productivity or power. All of these things can be used for good. We should seek the godly pursuit of these things as a way of fulfilling the creation mandate and even furthering God's kingdom. We are to be stewards, kingdom stewards, stewards who expect to give our master a return on his investment. He has entrusted certain resources to us and he expects us to use them responsibly and wisely and to grow them. So yes, reject the prosperity gospel, that is a lie, but also reject the poverty gospel. God calls us to something else. Now, with that kind of framework in mind, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 6. I think this is a passage that is very often misunderstood, and I want to set this passage straight for you. 
Matthew 6, it might seem that everything Jesus says here actually favors the poverty gospel. He seems to warn about wealth a great deal in this passage. But if we look at it carefully and look at it in context, we'll see something else is going on. Jesus actually strikes a remarkable balance here. And I think actually what Jesus teaches in this passage, rightly understood, epitomizes wisdom about wealth. Jesus is putting wealth in a proper perspective for us. The context of the Sermon on the Mount, of course, is Jesus teaching about the inbreaking of the kingdom. That's how Jesus starts his preaching in Matthew chapter 4. He began to preach the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that God's kingdom has arrived in history. What the prophets promised, and that's one of the keys here, what the prophets had promised is now dawning in history. It's now being inaugurated. Jesus is the king, he is establishing his kingdom, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he is describing how citizens of his kingdom are to live. This is what kingdom life in a fallen world looks like. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear that he wants every part of who we are. He doesn't just want part of you, he wants all of you. He wants all that we are and all that we have, all of it belongs to him. He wants your body, he wants your heart, he wants your desires, he wants your time, and yes, he wants your money too. Jesus wants your wallet, he wants your bank account, Jesus wants it all. And so we're called in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount's a good illustration of this, we are called to live the whole of life under the Lordship of Christ. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. We're to seek to manifest and embody and submit to the reign of Jesus in everything we do. So with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus says here. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus warns, Do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Instead, Jesus says, lay up treasure in heaven. Jesus' point here is not that earthly treasure is bad, it's that earthly treasure is vulnerable. Currencies can be debased. The stock market can crash. We know that earthly treasure is vulnerable. But Jesus is telling us there is a place where you can make an investment that has guaranteed returns, guaranteed results, a place where you can invest that is absolutely safe. Heavenly treasure is better than earthly treasure because heavenly treasure is not vulnerable. And you can lay up heavenly treasure, Jesus is saying, by how you use earthly treasure. And then Jesus goes on to give us the key. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart follows your treasure. We might think our treasure is going to follow our heart. And that's true in a sense. I don't dispute that. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says your heart will follow your treasure. And we've all probably experienced this in one way or another. Let's say you've never invested in the stock market, and then you put some money in the stock market. You've never had any interest in the stock market before. You didn't care if it was up or down because you had no treasure there, but you put some money there. You put some of your hard-earned money in the stock market, and all of a sudden, your heart goes up and down with the stock market. Your heart follows your treasure. You've got a stake in it. Or think about missions. Maybe you had never given to missions before and then you give to a missionary uh, doing gospel work in another nation and suddenly what happens? You find yourself really interested in how that mission work is doing. How faithful are they in spreading the gospel? What are they actually teaching? When news about that nation 
when you hear something going on there, all of a sudden your ears perk up and you want to know what's happening there and how might that affect my investment in that mission work in another nation. Your heart is following your treasure. Our hearts go where the money goes. So the question then is how do you use earthly treasure? Do you use earthly treasure to accumulate heavenly treasure? Has the kingdom of God become your priority? Do you use your money for kingdom purposes? That would be the question. Now, what it means to use your money for kingdom purposes, I'm going to have to come back to that in a few minutes because that's really one of the keys here. But let me go on in the passage. Verses 22 and 23, Jesus shifts from talking about treasure to talking about our eyes. He talks about the eye of the body. The eye is the lamp of the body. A good eye will fill the body with light. A bad eye will fill the body with darkness. The point Jesus is getting at is this. What is your vision for life? Think about how we use that word vision today. We'll talk about vision statements for individuals or for institutions. That word vision, what, what are we looking at? What are, we, what are our eyes fixed on out on the horizon? That word vision describes our purpose, our mission, our goal in life. And that's really what Jesus is talking about here. What is your vision for your life? What is your vision of the good life? What is your vision fixed on? Is your vision fixed on the kingdom of God? The kingdom of light? If so, your life will be increasingly filled with the light of God's kingdom. But if your eye is fixed on an idolatrous kingdom, some other kingdom, where you're just living for yourself or, say, your own pleasure, well, then you're going to be looking into the darkness. You won't be able to see anything, and you will be filled more and more with the darkness. That is the question here. What are our eyes fixed on? What is our vision for the future, our vision for life? Do I have tunnel vision for the kingdom of God? Are my eyes focused on it? Or am I focused on something else? And then Jesus gets to the punchline of the passage, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now this should be the death knell of any prosperity gospel for sure. But again, we need to understand what Jesus means. What is mammon? Mammon is simply money with a capital M. It is money turned into an idol. It is when money becomes a God substitute or a God rival. That's when money becomes mammon. See, for some people, money's just money. For other people, money becomes mammon. It becomes a God. And the way Jesus describes it here, there's really a battle going on. Everybody's got to serve somebody. Everybody's going to have some master that you serve. Will your master be mammon or God? Will you live for mammon or will you live for God? Mammon and God are competing. Mammon and God are engaged in a great battle. They are competing for your trust, your service, your sacrifice, your devotion, your joy. Mammon is vying for your allegiance allegiance that really belongs only to God. And Jesus is saying here, there really are some people who worship at the altar of mammon. They rely on mammon for security and happiness. They think that mammon will give them status and prestige and comfort. And it has the illusion of doing all those things. They will offer their bodies as a living sacrifice to mammon. They will love mammon with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Jesus is saying here, mammon is a false 
God. And this is why we have so many warnings about worshiping and trusting in money in the Bible, because as a false god, it will fail us. All idols fail us. Proverbs has many warnings about doing just the kind of thing Jesus is talking about here. In fact, everything Jesus says in this passage really echoes the teaching of Solomon in Proverbs. Proverbs, for example, says that wealth will sprout wings and fly away when you need it most. And so do not trust in wealth. Do not trust in riches because riches will let you down. Riches will elude you like sand running through your hands. Money is going to elude you when you need it most if you have trusted in it. Money cannot bring you security in that way. It cannot bring you happiness. Money is going to let you down if you make it into your God. It does not have the power to satisfy. Oh, sure, it has the illusion of that kind of power. It looks like it can satisfy us. Money makes all kinds of promises. Mammon makes all kinds of promises to us, but it can't keep those promises. Mammon always fails us when we trust in it. So what do we do? Well, we've got to do what we would do with any idol. We have to smash that idol. We have to humble that idol. We have to humble the almighty dollar. We have to turn mammon back into money. So mammon becomes mere money for us again. Money's just money. It can be a good thing or a bad thing depending on how you use it. But it's not a god. It's a tool, but it's not a god. Money is not your god. It's to be your servant. Money is not to be your God, it's to be your servant. The people of God do not serve money. Rather, we use money to serve God and to serve other people. That's how we put money in its rightful place. Wealth is a wonderful tool. It is a terrible master. Now, let me go from here to talking about certain very practical questions about how we use wealth. We've, we've seen Jesus teaching. We've got a basic framework from the Bible. I started out talking about the poverty gospel versus the prosperity gospel. We saw the problem with both of them. Then we've just scanned through Matthew chapter 6. And the truth is, and, and let, me, let me say this, the truth is, if you do not read this passage in Matthew chapter 6 wisely, and properly with the rest of Jesus' teaching and indeed with the rest of the Bible as the context, you could easily come away from this passage thinking, well, it sure sounds like Jesus is on the side of the poverty gospel. It sounds like Jesus tilts towards the poverty gospel. That's how it looks. Money is idolatrous. Money is a necessary evil. It looks like seeking God's kingdom means I have to, to give money away. I have to be weary of money. Uh, and, and any money that I keep for myself, well, that's earthly treasure that I could have turned into heavenly treasure if I had just been willing to give it away, if I had just been willing to, to part with it. I haven't given enough to the poor or to this or that cause. And so I've missed out on all this heavenly treasure I could have had. And what happens when you start to read the passage that way? You start to feel guilty. And you start to take inventory of everything you've spent money on. Everything from your utility bills to things you do for your kids and your mortgage payment and groceries, everything else. You think, you know, I could have spent less on those things and I would have had more to give away. And you start to feel guilty about everything. Everything that you have supposedly kept for yourself. And this is why we don't like to talk about money. And this is why preachers don't like to preach about money. Because where we talk about money, often guilt follows. And if you start to think this way, again, this is sort of reading Jesus through the lens of that poverty gospel, thinking that's how Jesus leans, then it all just becomes one big guilt trip. 
How can you justify not giving all your money to the poor when there are people in China starving? How dare you pay money for your kid to play Little League or take piano lessons when that money could have gone to missions? How dare you set the thermostat on 78 when you could have set it on 82 and sure you would have been hot, but you would have saved more money that you could have given away? You see the problem with this? And this is the logic a lot of people use, and then they torture themselves with guilt. I haven't given away enough. I've kept up too much earthly treasure for myself, and I have not accumulated enough heavenly treasure. And so they start to think that the ideal Christian life, and they know they'll never attain this ideal, but they start to think the ideal Christian life is some minimalist, simple life. And if I'm not living that minimalist, simple life of the bare necessities, then I am compromised with mammon. Because after all, I could always do with less. How little can I live with? That sort of becomes the question. Everything else I feel guilty about. Again, use that example. I set the thermostat on 78, but I could have put it on 79 or 80. I could always have saved a little more money and given away a little more money. And the Christian life becomes this miserable, guilt-ridden existence. And you think, well, at least I'm going to go to heaven when I die. You know, I might live this miserable, guilty life now, but at least there's heaven on the other side, right? Well, that's not how God wants you to live. That is not how God wants you to live. Setting the thermostat at 78 or 77 or even lower than that does not make you a mammon worshiper. Paying for your kid to take music lessons or play Little League does not mean you are living selfishly for yourself and serving mammon as your God. I think Jesus actually explains this. He hints at this in the next section. We didn't read it this morning but you're probably familiar with it. Jesus, in the next section, shows we don't need to live a life at the level of bare minimum sustenance, the bare minimum needed for existence. There's nothing intrinsically virtue, virtuous about living in poverty or living with as little as possible. In Matthew 6, Jesus goes on to say to his disciples, look at the birds of the air. They, not, they neither sow nor reap, yet your Father feeds them. And he doesn't just give them the bare minimum they need to live. He provides abundantly for them. That's what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus says, you're of more value than the birds. So expect God to provide for you not just a bare minimum existence. You ought to be content if that's all God gives you, certainly, if you're seeking first his kingdom. But there's no reason to think that that is God's purpose for you. Or Jesus goes on, he says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet even King Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like these. Jesus is saying God provides abundant food for the birds and extravagant clothing for the lilies. God is not a God of the bare minimum. He's not that kind of father. He's not a miser. Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear. The pagans seek after those things. The pagans think that's what life is all about, getting those things for themselves. The focus of their lives is meeting their own needs and their own desires. That's what their eyes are fixated on. That's what they live for. That's the chief end of life for them, for the pagans. But Jesus says it's not that way for my disciples because you have a heavenly father and your heavenly father knows you need all these things. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? All these things will be added to you. He doesn't say seek first the kingdom and you'll have that bare minimum existence. He says seek the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. 
It's a picture of extravagant, abundant giving, generous giving from the Heavenly Father to His children. God has done this for us, I would say. God has given to us abundantly. And I mean, every one of us here enjoys luxuries and comforts in life that King Solomon cannot even begin to dream about. Solomon didn't have a thermostat. He didn't have air conditioning. I'm not saying that uh, we necessarily have more gold accumulated than Solomon does. Probably not. But millions and millions of people in the world today have greater wealth than Solomon. Again, not necessarily in the form of gold, but more true wealth, more comfort than Solomon could have imagined. God, our Heavenly Father, has provided abundantly. And when you think about all of the abundant blessings God has given to you, that roof over your head, which is certainly not the bare minimum, is more than that. The clothes you wear, which looking out at you, you're not wearing bare minimum sackcloth. You've actually all got very nice clothes on today. God's provided for you abundantly. What should you do with that? Do not feel guilty about your privileges. Give thanks for them. Give thanks to your Heavenly Father who has provided these things for you. See, in seeking the kingdom, yes, that, that's, that's, the, that's the goal Jesus gives to us. We're to seek first the kingdom of God. Seek the kingdom above everything else. But that doesn't mean that it's wrong to seek, say, food and clothing. We have to seek after those things in some sense, even if it just means going down to the grocery store or to the shopping center so we can feed and clothe our, ourselves and our family. But we don't do those things first. They are not our obsession. We seek first the kingdom of God. And if you seek first the kingdom of God, then you can enjoy whatever abundance God provides for you with gratitude in your heart. And you know what? If you're seeking first the kingdom of God, if those things were taken away from you, you could still be happy. You could still be content because you've still got God. And if you've got God, you've got everything, even if you have nothing else. But when God does give abundantly, when God does provide abundantly, you can be thankful, you can rejoice in that, you don't have to feel guilty about that. Let me see if I can make this more concrete for you. What's more important for you in, in terms of priorities? How would you rank these things? What's more important, having good character or having good clothes? That is to say, what's more important to you, righteousness, righteous living, or Living in such a way that you stay up with the latest fashion trends. Living in alignment with God's righteousness or living in alignment with the fashion trends. What's more important to you? Well, let me ask the question another way. What's more important to you? Having wisdom or having gold and silver? If you had to rank those things, how would you rank them? Solomon already told us back in Proverbs chapter 3 that wisdom is better than gold and silver. That you should seek after wisdom. You should prefer wisdom above gold and silver. Now, that does not mean having gold and silver are wrong. In fact, Solomon goes on to connect pursuing wisdom with gaining gold and silver. But if you are focused on God's kingdom, your priorities will reflect that. You will have what theologians historically have called rightly ordered loves. Rightly ordered desires, rightly ordered affections, your loves will be appropriately proportionate to the object of that love. So you'll love God most of all, and then everything under that will fall in line, will be ranked in your love, in your, the degree of affection you have for it, it will be properly ranked. So you'll love righteousness more than money. You'll love holiness more than gold and silver. You'll love wisdom above rubies. You'll love good character more than you love good clothes. Doesn't mean those other things are bad. 
It just means they're not as preferable. They don't rank as high for you. And there will be times in life where you're forced to make some kind of a choice. There will be a situation where you could compromise yourself morally or you could compromise yourself theologically in order to add to your bank account or in order to bolster your status in the eyes of people in the world. But if you value God's kingdom more, you will refuse those compromises. You will seek righteousness above money. doesn't mean you don't want any money. I have no interest in that. It just means righteousness is more important to you. But there's something else we see when we recognize the kingdom as the context for this teaching on money. Another reason we end up with so much false guilt in the church today is that we have far too narrow a view of what the kingdom is. Remember, the kingdom is the context for all of this. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is nothing less than the renewal of all of human life under King Jesus. It is the restoration of all things under Jesus' lordship. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's the reordering of human life, the reordering of creation under his reign. So the kingdom doesn't lead to a poverty gospel because the kingdom includes every legitimate endeavor that falls under the creation mandate. Provided we seek to undertake that endeavor in obedience to Christ, it is legitimate and it contributes to God's kingdom. So yes, definitely, kingdom living includes giving money to the poor and to missions. But you know what else it includes? Air conditioning and little league. And piano lessons. I mean, can you play piano to the glory of God? You bet you can. And that means it is a kingdom activity for the Christian and pursuing it is a legitimate use of money. The kingdom includes leaving an inheritance for your children. God's people building multi-generational wealth so they can accumulate more and more influence and exert a righteous influence in the world. That too is a kingdom activity a spiritual thing to do. It can include accumulating the capital needed to start a Christian business. In fact, being a Christian businessman, being a Christian entrepreneur might be one of the greatest ways that you can use money to bless others. It might be one of the greatest ways you can bring blessing to others because you know what entrepreneurs do? Entrepreneurs create jobs. See, when we Christians talk about these things, a lot of times we're not very wise. We're not very wise about helping the poor. We're very short-sighted, and we want these radical, emotional, one-off acts of generosity instead of a sustained way of life that actually makes things better for many more people. One of the best ways to help the poor is to be generous and give them money in, in acts of charity. There's no question about that. But you know what can even be even more important in the long run? You know, think about this. If you give a, a great sum of money to the poor, that will alleviate poverty, but only for a moment because that money is going to run out. If you really want to eradicate poverty over the long term, maybe a better solution is to start a business and create jobs and to train people, to give people skills and put people to work. Or you know what else might be a really good thing to do? To go into politics and to push for policies that would uphold property rights and the rule of law and that would lower taxes, leaving more money free for investing in businesses that will create jobs and that will eradicate poverty. That's what really serves human flourishing. That's what really promotes true health and wealth, those kinds of things. And I want to challenge you. 
Go look at the parables of Jesus and you will see this. The parables of Jesus tend to be agrarian, which has to do with organic growth, or they tend to come from the business sector, uh, from the marketplace. But again, even then, they have to do with growth. Go look at the parables of Jesus and what will you find? You'll find the parables of Jesus again and again and again are pro-business, pro-private property, pro-productivity, pro-profit, pro-entrepreneurship, pro-investment. Jesus told one parable after another that came straight out of the business world and the marketplace. And there's nothing in Matthew chapter 6 that contradicts those parables. They're all tied together by the kingdom of God. That's the common link that ties together this teaching in Matthew 6 about wealth with those parables. It's all connected to the kingdom. If you think helping the poor is a kingdom priority, then yes, you might give some money away to the poor right now. But you will also recognize that you are obligated to make enough money, you are obligated to accumulate enough wealth for yourself and for your family that you will not become a burden to others and that you will have some excess that you can give away to the needy and perhaps even that you will have some that you can invest in businesses that will create jobs that help to alleviate poverty for the long haul. In summary, the chief end of life is certainly not to seek wealth. It's not. Pagans think that way because they worship mammon. They serve mammon. But Christians know better. The chief end of life is to seek God's kingdom. But precisely for that reason, we seek after wealth and every other good gift in a righteous way. We seek wealth so we can use it for kingdom purposes. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. Not that you renounce wealth, but that you seek it in a righteous way and you use it for righteous kingdom purposes. And the good news that stands behind and over all of this is that we have a heavenly father. As Jesus told us, we have a heavenly father who loves us, who delights to give us good gifts. He delights in doing good for his children. He is not a miser. He's not a minimalist. He's not a, a cosmic Marie Kondo saying, oh, you got to pare down, pare down, pare down. No, he is a God of extravagant and abundant giving. That is our God. That is the God we serve. We don't serve mammon. We serve a God who can fulfill his promises. Mammon can't keep his promises. Our Heavenly Father can and our Heavenly Father is a, 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 a God who delights to give gifts. He is a God of extravagance, a God of abundance. He is a generous and faithful God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.